he, he was kind of like a flighty bird when he walked across the the uh, courtroom. Uh, uh, the look on his face was like a, a fighter who felt like he was had already lost the fight. I mean, all those things. She she was a great wordsmith. If I could write half as well as Dorothy Kilgallen, I'd have had 25 bestsellers because she was she was just so good with her visualization. Of, you felt like you were right in the courtroom. And all at once then, uh, Ruby caught her eye and smiled at her. And Joe Tonahill, uh, the co-counsel for Ruby, finally came over to Dorothy and said, well, you know, they watched your show at the uh, Carousel Club, What's My Line? And Jack Ruby would like to talk to you. 400 re reporters at, from around the world at the uh, Ruby trial. She's the only one that interviewed Ruby. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is attorney and author Mark Shaw. He's going to talk about his very important book, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, The Mysterious Death of What's My Line star and media icon, Dorothy Kilgallen. Back in the early 1960s, Dorothy Kilgallen was a female media icon of unprecedented influence. Not only was she a highly respected and courageous investigative journalist with serious writing chops, whose column was syndicated in 200 newspapers across America, she was also a witty and charming panelist on the hit TV show, What's My Line? Following the assassination of President Kennedy on November 22, 1963, she was one of the only journalists that questioned the official story, namely that the president had been gunned down by a lone nut named Lee Harvey Oswald. Dorothy did what good and honest journalists are supposed to do. She launched an investigation, traveling to Dallas and New Orleans and talking to people of interest, including Jack Ruby, the nightclub owner who shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald. She planned to write what she called the most important book of her life, one that would reveal the truth of who really killed the president and why. But before she could do that, she was found dead in her New York City townhouse, murdered, Mark Shaw claims, in his compelling and important book. It's my great honor to welcome Mark Shaw and to name him and the great Dorothy Kilgallen as today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Tell us a little bit about your background. I know you were a lawyer. I'm a former a lot of things, I guess. Okay. It's a checkered uh, background. Uh, grew up in the Midwest, uh, went to Purdue, almost flunked out. Took me six years to get through there. Mm -hmm. I tried to be an engineer, chemical engineer, and that didn't work. So I got into economics and uh, basically uh, played golf on the golf team and chased women for, for six years. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, got out of there and then had no job. Uh, bartended Chicago. Uh, and, and guys used to come in there and they would uh, try to uh, an interest a, a dolly into going home with them. And they'd say, you know what? I'm going to law school. <laughs> so that sounded pretty good. So I sent a, 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 a query down to Indiana University Law School. 
and said, you know, my grades are terrible and everything. And, and the guy said, well, we just need some bodies right now because we're starting a new division. So I got in there and uh, I was a criminal defense lawyer then for about four or five, six years, almost all murder cases, high profile cases and all of that. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's where I learned to write. I never uh, thought I would write any books uh, at all, uh, but um, uh, I learned to, to write uh, no, no workshops or anything by talking to juries. Mm-hmm. And people say that my books, there's almost 30 of them now, are easily read. And they are because I just try to talk to the to the reader. So uh, I didn't even think about writing any books until I started covering uh, network, uh, uh, high-profile network uh, cases. And the first one was Mike Tyson. Mm, yeah. And uh, that was in 1992. Later than I would cover Kobe Bryant and O.J. Simpson and some others. But I was at the Ruby trial uh, because after I... Uh, uh, began uh, working with, um, uh, you know, with with doing something about some books. Uh, Good Morning America hired me to cover a high-profile case in Aspen, Colorado. I don't know if you remember, but Claudie Langer. Oh, sure. Was Andy Williams' uh, wife uh, accidentally, so to speak. Yeah, accidentally. Uh, got her <laughs> uh, lover, Spider Savage, the uh, skiing star. Yeah. And, um, she was indicted for murder and all that. So I covered that trial Interesting, and uh, worked with uh, ABC and, and everything. And then that led me into the working with the networks and things like that. So, uh, I kind of leaped into the, the network, uh, coverage, uh, you know, without ever considering that I would do that. Mm-hmm. But the Tyson book was then what set me off on, on writing the uh, the books. I, I really enjoyed write, uh, researching and writing that particular book because I sat there in the front row and watched as Tyson was convicted based on very, very little evidence. Yeah, uh, He had the worst uh, criminal defense lawyer in the history of man. <laughs> and uh, so I was upset by that verdict. And yeah. I, I wrote a book about him and then took off after that. Mm-hmm. How did you become interested in Dorothy Kilgallen? Well, you have to skip up a bit because uh, I started writing the books uh, oh, I wrote a couple sports books, one about Larry Bird's first season coaching the Pacers, one about uh, Don Larson's perfect game in the 1956 World Series, a couple books about the Holocaust, which had always interested me. Um, I worked on a book about Thomas Merton, the famous Catholic monk. Sure. Uh, all of these books and everything, uh, different variety of things. And then, you know, I had practiced law in San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the 1980s. And I practiced law with none other than Melvin Belli. Wow. Who was the, uh, ended up being the attorney for Jack Ruby. And when he died in 1996, you'll get a kick out of this. You know, he was this flamboyant lawyer, represented the Rolling Stones and Tammy Faye Baker and Errol Flynn and, and, a, and a gangster named uh, uh, Mickey Cohen. Yeah. That, that kind of surprised me a little bit. And so uh, when he died in 96, I looked to see what Mr. Belli had written, and he'd written two. Now, get this, two autobiographies, and they conflicted. <laughs> okay? So Perfect. I decided, well, I'm going to write my own. <laughs> so I began to research into his uh, life and times. And if anything, Melvin Belli was a great liar. Yeah. Uh, he, he could lie about anything. Uh, one of the best stories I've ever heard is, and he was a ladies' man, married six times. Wow. One of the best stories I ever heard, and I knew about it when I, when I had an office in this building, was that, you know, what you would see is that uh, women would go into his office having some legal problem or whatever that was very simplistic, and they'd be in there about an hour. <laughs> and what we were told was that Mr. Belli, the first thing he would say after 
talking about the case was take your clothes off. (laughs) Then he had the audacity to bill them for that hour. Oh, my God. So that's the kind of character he was. But I was shocked when I learned that this civil attorney who had sued pharmaceutical companies and all this, a civil lawyer, became Jack Ruby's attorney. Yeah. And that really piqued my curiosity, as as it would for you, I know. Yes. So what I decided to do was, uh, because Belli had uh, Mickey Cohen as his client and this whole mafia thing, I'm going to look into the 1960 election. Mm-hmm. We're getting closer to my finding about Dorothy Kilgallen, but first I wrote about the 60 election, where I was able to prove through an eyewitness that was right there when Joe Kennedy ordered Bobby Kennedy to um, appoint uh, uh or, or, or ordered uh, JFK to appoint Bobby Kennedy Attorney General, mm-hmm. and and the deal was that uh, if you know that uh, Bobby Kennedy would leave the uh, mafia alone if they helped him win West Virginia and Illinois, and they did. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously there was a double cross here. Yeah, and the first thing that uh, that uh, Bobby Kennedy did was throw, deport, whatever you want to call it, the, the mafioso kingpin in New Orleans, Carlos Marcelo, into Central America, where he almost died. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't mess around with those guys. No, no. And uh, so and it's, I'm just going to tell you a quick story. Sure. When I was with Good Morning America, they sent me to Philadelphia to interview uh, the mob boss's lawyer. Mm-hmm. And we were surprised that he would talk to me, but he did. And I interviewed him in his office and everything. And they played that on GMA the next day, told me some secrets about what they were going to do with mobbing up Atlantic City casinos and everything. <laughs> I mean, it was shocked that he told me these things. <laughs> And so uh, they played that the next morning on Good Morning America. It was a huge hit. And I was about to leave Philadelphia. The producer called me. I always get a chill when I talk about this. <laughs> um, called me and said, uh, stay there and see if you can uh, if you can interview this lawyer again. Mm-hmm. So I called his office, uh, Ralph, and I asked for uh, a woman answered. I said, I'd like to talk to Mr. Whatever his name was. And uh, there was dead silence. And then uh, all at once, I said, ma'am, are you okay? And she said, well, and she's crying. She said, I guess you don't know. When he started his car this morning, it blew up. Oh, my God. That is a true story. And I got out of Philadelphia as fast as I could. Wow. So he got in trouble probably for talking yeah, to you. Yeah, you can't yeah. mess around with that. <laughs> you know, that code of silence that they have, you know. So anyway, but through my then investigation more about Melvin Belli after the 60 election, uh, I, I couldn't forget a comment that was made to me by one of his friends. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, when uh, Dorothy Kilgallen died, well, in fact, Melvin Bell, I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. I thought, well, wait a second. He was on What's My Line, the CBS television show, because that's what most people remember her for. Right. She was the prosecutor-like panelist who guessed all these unusual occupations and all of that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, uh, his friend said, well, no, no, no. He knew her from the Jack Ruby trial. Yeah. I said, what? Yeah. He said, yeah. And you know, it was interesting when she died. He said, you know, they've killed Dorothy. Now they'll go after Jack Ruby. Wow. And I couldn't get that comment out of my mind. I wasn't sure what to do with it. This is a comment that Melvin Belli made. Yeah. Wow. So I'm going to look into this and this whole thing with Belli and and, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. And it just opened up a stream of information about her. People may not remember. She was a uh, college dropout, uh, ended up as a, a news re- a reporter for uh, the New York Journal America and one of the big newspapers back there. She had a column syndicated to 200 newspapers across the country. She had the television show watched by 10 million people. She had a radio show watched by a million. 
She was this respected reporter who covered the Dr. Sam Shepard case, which became the fugitive, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. I mean, she was a big deal. Yeah. New York Post called her the most uh, um, the most uh, uh, impressive of uh, most authentic voice uh, of, of any of any reporter in the nation. That's not exactly the quote, but something like that. she was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Ernest Hemingway called her uh, the most uh, uh, the best uh, female writer. Uh, in the world, I mean, she was she was big time. Yeah. So you're you're asking your your viewers and listeners are asking, well, wait a minute now, Mark, how do how do we get from the Dorothy Kilgallen uh, knowledge you have into the JFK assassination? And if and if I may, this is how. Yeah. Dorothy and JFK were very close friends, most powerful female voice in America. That's what it was. Yeah. Anyway, she and JFK were very close friends. She had been to his home when he was a senator. Played charades, uh, at, it was at parties with Jackie, all that. Mm -hmm. And so they were very close friends. And to the extent that at some point uh, uh, he, he asked her to come to the White House and bring his young son, Carrie. Mm -hmm. And she did so. Mm -hmm. And Pierre Salinger set it up. And when they walked into the library, there was the president of the United States. And you can just imagine wow. what a big that deal that was for the little boy. Yeah. So he made a fuss over these. Uh, these uh, letters that uh, Carrie had brought from his third grade class, and he read one of Carrie's, and he praised it, and all of that. He gave him gave Carrie a, a PT nine PT one oh nine pin, all that. Mm -hmm. So that meant so much to Dorothy. And then in 1963, November, when she heard that JFK had been killed, it just devastated her. She cried yeah. with Carrie in her arms, and all of that. And then. When she saw Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald, she was very suspicious of what was happening. Yes. You'll be interested in what the first column that she wrote about the JFK assassination. She said, what I remember is a tall man stooping over a little boy gushing about his letters he brought from his uh, third grade class. Mm -hmm. This is the man who was killed in Dallas. Mm. And from that moment on, uh, she was she was uh, on the job. She immediately left for Dallas. She was there within two or three days of the assassination and the killing of Oswald. And she started writing all of these columns. And this is where uh, it, the drum roll kind of uh, yeah. begins in terms of how Dorothy Kilgallen. Let's see, this is November '63. She'll be die. She'll be dead in less than two years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she was one of the only journalists at the time who was questioning the official report, which was that it was this lone crazy assassin up in the window of the book depository building, Lee Harvey Oswald. In her column of November 29, 1963, a week after the assassination, Dorothy Kilgallen wrote, and I quote, the case is closed, is it? Well, I'd like to know how, in a big smart town like Dallas, a man like Jack Ruby, owner of a striptease honky-tonk, can stroll in and out of police headquarters as if it was at a health club, at a time when a small army of law enforcers is keeping tight security guard on Oswald. Security? What a word for it. I will not try to speak for the people of Dallas, but around here, the people I talk to really believe that a man has the right to be tried in court. When that right is taken away from any man by the incredible combination of Jack Ruby and insufficient security, we feel chilled. Justice is a big rug. 
When you pull it out from under one man, a lot of others fall too. That is why so many people are saying there is something queer about the killing of Oswald, something strange about the way his case was handled, a great deal missing in the official account of his crime. The American people have just lost a beloved president. It is a dark chapter in our history, but we have the right to read every word of it. It cannot be kept locked in a file in Dallas. Here's what I say when you hear all these experts out there and people who've written books and all, they've always leave Dorothy out, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, you know, they talk about their expertise and everything, but they weren't there. I wasn't there. You weren't there. Right. She was there. Yeah. She was in Daly Plaza's talking to uh, Jess Curry about where he where he believed the first shots came from. And this kind of connects with what you told me before we got on the air, mm-hmm. because he told her the first shots he heard for, were from the overpass. Mm-hmm. They weren't from the uh, book depository. And you can elaborate on that some as to what you know, based on this new book you're writing. Yeah. So he told her that uh, she then was uh, invited uh, to by the judge to come in uh, to his chambers for the Ruby trial and wanted her autograph. She sat in the front row and she started listening to all this testimony. Yeah. And what happened there was the first real curiosity she had other than Ruby shooting Oswald, because what she heard was Jack Ruby had said he would be there when uh, when uh, Oswald was going to be transferred. I will get into the basement uh, with my police friends. I'll make like a reporter. And she's just filling these these uh, these uh, single single space tablets, probably, or letter size uh, documents with uh, all these notes and everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she can't believe because that's completely against uh, uh, Ruby saying that he would be, you know, he he just happened by the Dallas Police Department. So now she's got that information. And then she sits there in the front row and all at once she makes contact with Ruby. She writes a column that's in Fighting for Justice and as well as The Reporter Who Too Much and even in Collateral Damage, another of my books, where she talks about what he looked like. He was he, he was kind of like a flighty bird when he walked across the the uh, courtroom. Uh, uh, the look on his face was like a, a fighter who felt like he was he'd already lost the fight. I mean, all those things. She mm-hmm. she was a great wordsmith. Yeah. If I could write half as well as Dorothy Kilgallen, I'd have had 25 bestsellers because she was she was just so good with her visualization. Of, you felt like you were right in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And all at once then. Uh, Ruby caught her eye and smiled at her. Mm-hmm. And Joe Tonahill, uh, the co-counsel for Ruby, finally came over to Dorothy and said, well, you know, they watched your show at the uh, Carousel Club. What's my line? Yeah. And Jack Ruby would like to talk to you. Wow. 400 re- reporters at from around the world at the uh, Ruby trial. She's the only one that interviewed Ruby. Yeah. She did for about eight to 10 minutes behind a railing between the spectators, the jury, and the council tables, and uh, you're, you're thinking, and so will your listeners and uh, and uh, viewers, uh, okay, Mark, now you're going to spill the beans and tell us exactly <laughs> what Ruby told her, but I can't do that, and I'm going to explain why in just a little bit. Okay. So whatever happened then, Dorothy took this information back to New York City, and she decided that whatever, we, we kind of know what Ruby told her, because the first thing that that uh, she did, she did not go to Washington and look in the FBI or the industrial complex. She did not go to uh, look into the Cubans. She didn't look into the mafia. Excuse me. She didn't look into LBJ 
or the a CIA or anything like that. She went straight to New Orleans mm-hmm. because I think like me, and in some ways I feel like Dorothy wanted me to tell her story, which I, which I'm very honored that I've done. Mm-hmm. She always looked at motive yeah. in all of these cases, the Dr. Sam Shepard case. And in fact, she actually saved his life, uh, from a life, life, uh, life in prison, yeah. uh, by her actions. Uh, and he was later proven innocent. Yeah, later proven that he he was not the the one armed man was actually there. Yeah, nobody believed him. At no, the time. not at all. So she had an awful lot of integrity that way, and we'll talk about it. So anyway, so she looked at motive. Yeah, and she said to herself, and and so much of this is common sense, really, and that's why it's hard for me to believe that so many people have missed it. Uh, but uh, what she thought was, wait a minute. Uh, uh, who has the, the greatest motive, the strongest motive to have killed JFK? Mm-hmm. And she goes right back to the whole situation with RFK deporting Carlos Marcelo to Central America, where he finally died. Mm-hmm. Marcelo gets back in the in the country, decides, wait a minute, Bobby Kennedy's going to keep hounding me. He's going to keep deporting, trying to deport me. He's already charged me with racketeering in a New Orleans federal court. I can't let that happen. And I want to kill the SOB. But if I do, if I do, then JFK will come after me with everything the government has. But if I eliminate, help eliminate, orchestrate JFK's death, Bobby Kennedy will be powerless. And that is exactly what happened. He resigned as attorney general mm-hmm. and never bothered them again. So Dorothy knows all of this now. Yeah. And the next thing that she, she does is she starts to look in to the Warren Commission. Yeah. Mark, can we go back one minute yeah, sure. about Jack Ruby? Because his trial was very weird, and Melvin Belli used an insanity defense, which basically shut up Jack Ruby. Like it, it, it destroyed his credibility, and he never got a chance to testify, which was extremely important. And he wanted to. Yeah, he asked to do it. And Belli, you know, uh, I, I had a quote from uh, Belli's uh, chauffeur that I interviewed, uh, where Belli at one point. Uh, uh, the chauffeur said, what's going on at the, in the courtroom and all that? And he said, oh, it's just a white way, a whitewash. We're just going through the motions. Yeah. You know, at the end of the trial, he never begged for Ruby's life. Uh, life. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he he just basically, I believe in my own mind, and I have proof of this, uh, when Belli was with one of his friends at, at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, a waiter came up when uh, Ruby shot Oswald and said to them, well, you're never going to guess it. Uh, uh, somebody just blew away Lee Harvey Oswald. His name's Jack Ruby. And this uh, witness that I talked to, an eyewitness, said, well, Belli said to him, well, OK, now I'll have to represent Ruby. Wow. So I think he was on standby. You know, Ruby was the, or uh, Belli was a, a mafia aficionado. He loved to he would go to Las Vegas where the mafia mafioso was. He would announce himself on the PA in these hotels. Melvin Belli, Melvin Belli, you have a call, things like that, you know. To get their attention. They loved to be thought of. I, I knew that even when I practiced law with him. He loved to have people think he was part of the mafia so they'd be afraid of him. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no question at that trial that he, I think his job, they had they had orchestrated, I believe, through Marcello, uh, Oswald, uh, you know, being involved with the JFK assassin assassination and being arrested. Uh, then he's shut up by Ruby. Mm-hmm. Then Ruby uh, is, is r- shut up through Belli's um, ludicrous um, insanity defense at trial. Dorothy, being the intrepid journalist she was, attended the Jack Ruby trial. 
This is what she wrote about it in February 1964. Quote, Jack Ruby's eyes were as shiny brown and white bright as the glass eyes of a doll. He tried to smile, but his smile was a failure. When we shook hands, his hand trembled in mine ever so slightly, like the heartbeat of a bird. I'm nervous and worried, he told me. I feel I'm on the verge of something I don't understand. The breaking point, maybe. When Kilgallen told Ruby, I think you're holding up pretty well, he replied, I'm fooling you, Dorothy. I'm really scared. Let's go back just a little bit to uh, J. Edgar Hoover's mindset when uh, Jack Kennedy is, is murdered. Yeah. You can say a lot of things about uh, J., uh, J. Edgar Hoover, but he was a smart man. He had all this dirt on every public official from the president on down. Mm-hmm. He preserved his job over another number of administrations. He was a smart guy, but he's saying, wait a minute, I, I think that's what's going to happen here. They're going to blame the FBI for not stopping this, and that means me. Yeah. So he did two things, uh, Ralph, that were just outrageous. The first was, and Jess Curry told Dorothy Kilgallen this, Hoover marched into the Dallas Police Department offices and demanded the files. He confiscated all of the files and sent them back to the bureau in Washington, Mm D.C. The other thing that he did changed history for sure, and that was to basically steal Jack Kennedy's body and ship it off to uh, Washington, D.C., so the autopsy uh, could be performed there. Cyril Weck, who I'm sure you know about, the forensic scientist, told me that that autopsy was the worst one he's ever seen in 60,000 of them that he knows about. So they they ship it back to New York. And and the way that Hoover told everybody he could do that was that, listen to this, the killing of a president is not a state crime. It's a federal crime. Crazy. That was so far from the truth. In fact, the state attorney general of Texas was already yeah. uh, going to investigate. That's right. And they shut it but down. Hoover needed to shut that door as well. Yeah. Yeah. So he's done that. And now he thinks to myself, of course, he's shouting Oswald alone, Oswald alone. He tells the Justice Department, we must make sure that the American people know it was Oswald and no one else. Yeah. And then LBJ calls them. They live right next door to each other and in, in, in D.C., and LBJ says, oh, well, J. Edgar Hoover, they're going to invest. Congress is going to investigate. And the Texas attorney general is going to investigate. We've got to do something. And LBJ comes up with the idea for the Warren Commission, mm-hmm. headed by uh, Chief Justice, Supreme Court uh, Justice uh, uh, Earl Warren, yeah. the Warren Report. Yeah. And what they do in uh, do do next, and, and people can learn about what was in their mind at that point to protect themselves. Uh, you can go to the internet and, 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 and on YouTube and put in uh, LBJ Hoover audio tapes mm-hmm. about who to appoint to the Warren Commission. I mean, anybody could find that. I found it at the National Archives, but you can find it. Yeah. And they talk about who they want to appoint. Yep. And the first thing that Dorothy would have been shocked at was the appointing of, of Alan Dulles as one of the commission members, because <laughs> you know, Ralph, it yeah. was two years earlier. Yeah. When uh, when JFK fired him over the whole Cuban mess. Yep. So uh, that's the first one that would have bothered her. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also, um, you know, LBJ is on there, uh, you know, for sure. Uh, they wanted to protect. They want to protect themselves against any investigation. But LBJ's uh, uh, dealings with the oil industry and all of that. Yeah. Uh, 
um, Hoover's uh, background with friends in the mafia and, and everything else like that. Mm-hmm. Then they bring in, uh, they can't bring in uh, RFK to protect the Kennedy family. So they bring in Nicholas Katzenbach, the acting attorney general, and he's an advisor to the commission. And he won't let them investigate the 60 fixing election. He won't let them investigate the complicity of Marilyn Monroe's death in 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 or uh, uh, the complicity of RFK and Marilyn Monroe's death, which I proved in my book, Collateral Damage. Yep. So they're they're in protection mode. Yeah. And then what I, I I should have gone further with this because Dorothy knew all that. Um, she was she did get herself in trouble because uh, this uh, member of the of the uh, Warren Commission, Senator John Sherman Cooper, that we're going to talk about. Uh, whom she knew from uh, being at parties at his home in Georgetown. He had been at parties at her home and all of that. Republican from Kentucky. Uh, let her have passed her the secret Jack Ruby testimony before the Warren Commission. Wow. And when she read that, it just shocked her again because it was different than what she heard at trial. Mm-hmm. It was different from what he had said in te- supposedly said in testimony. I mean, she knew and she never really focused on Lee Harvey Oswald. She thought, that was a dead end. He was too confusing and everything. Yeah. So she focused on Ruby. Yeah. So she gets that secret testimony and she is able to get her publisher at the newspaper, uh, you know, to go ahead and print it on the front page. And there was outrage mm-hmm. from uh, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, uh, office and, and him throwing things. I've been able to substantiate that and everything else. So what does he do? And I love this visual. He sends two of his agents, and I like to think they're big, strong, bulky guys, over to Dorothy Kilgallen, who's a little pint-sized woman, mm-hmm. to her townhouse in Manhattan, and they sit her down on the couch, and then they just start interrogating here. Well, now, where'd you get this? Why, where, who's your source? Yeah. Where'd you get it? What city? What time? And all that. And she looks them straight in the eye, and if anybody needs any more um, corroboration of Dorothy Kilgallen's in- in- integrity, what she said to them was, I would rather die than reveal my sources. Good for her. But of course, she has made an enemy now even more of J. Edgar Hoover. She's the only one going against the grain. Yeah. So what? where I made my mistake then, and, and I, I've apologized it in some ways because I should have known this as a historian. There was more to the Warren Commission than I knew about. Mm-hmm. But I got lucky, although I don't believe in luck. It probably was just meant to be. Right, right. A man named Morris Wolf. Uh, in in July of last year, got in touch with me by email. You know, I'm really honored that there are more than uh, 11 million uh, YouTube views of presentations and interviews I've given at uh, at different uh, locales and so on and so forth. He gets in touch with me. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing to me too, the college dropout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he gets in touch with email and, and he says in there, Mr. Shaw, I just watched a presentation of yours at the Allen Library Allen Public Library near Dallas, mm-hmm. and I heard a name that I knew, Dorothy Kilgallen. Wow. And the last sentence in the in the uh, email says, I knew her. Mm. Well, as you can imagine, my ears perked up because, you know, this is 60 years ago, and sure. very few people are still alive that knew uh, Dorothy Kilgallen. Mm-hmm. So I called him right away, and I started then uh, interviewing him. I wish I could have gone ahead and recorded it. But he just took off on me, and I just had to write as quickly as I could. So here's Morris Wolf, Yale uh, educated as a lawyer. Uh, it was an amazing lawyer. He represented Raoul Wallenberg, the uh, Swedish uh, uh, Jewish person who saved so many lives during World War II. He wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was a very acclaimed 
a lawyer, but when he started talking to me about what he did next, he said, I worked for Bobby Kennedy when he was the attorney general. Wow. And again, I'm thinking, I've got an eyewitness. You know, I've got Dorothy at the at the Ruby trial in Dallas. Now I've got somebody inside uh, the government uh, in 63, 64, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. And, and he just starts going on. He said, well, I, I work for Bobby Kennedy. And and I know with you, when you're interviewing this subject, for instance, that, that's the subject of your new book, you're looking for details. Yes, absolutely. You're looking for corroboration of what they're telling you. And he says, well, I started working for Bobby Kennedy. A professor um, uh, referred me there. And I used, and the first time I went, I walked into his office, and there was Bobby Kennedy, his shirt sleeve rolled up, mm-hmm. you know, past his elbow, mm-hmm. uh, his tie, his tie undone, a white shirt, crumpled white shirt. Um, he would move around kind of quickly when he was real excited. His chin would move, his eyes would fly. You know, I'm just writing all this down <laughs> as I as I can because I know he was there. Yeah. And he said, while I work for Bobby Kennedy. Uh, I helped him write the uh, Title II of the Civil Rights Act. And I'm just amazed you did. And I quizzed him about that and everything. And then he said, I'm going to tell you something that is going to make your blood boil. Hmm. He said, while I was there with Robert Kennedy, uh, they trusted me enough, got me a high security clearance, and I would uh, take uh, envelopes, uh, manila envelopes with uh, secret documents in them from the attorney general's office to the White House. I'd ride my bicycle back and forth with those documents. And you know why, Mr. Shaw? Because both men knew that J. Edgar Hoover was tapping their phones. <laughs> now, that's at the highest echelons of government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's just hard to believe, but he tells me that. No, Bobby Kennedy and J. Edgar Hoover did not like each other. Oh, boy. I had met somebody who who worked for Bobby Kennedy, and he said the same thing. He said they, oh, yes. uh, they used to play dirty tricks on one another all the time. There was no friendship yeah, there, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so he, uh, Morris tells me this, and I'm taking it all in, and I'm waiting for him to tell me how he knew Dorothy Kilgallen. But he said, you know, uh, my days with uh, Robert Kennedy were done. But he said to me, listen, uh, one of JFK's closest friends, uh, this uh, man and his wife uh, are, uh, go to dinner at the White House with uh, – with JFK and Jackie, and and those photographs are in uh, Fighting for Justice, my most recent book. I've seen those. Uh, yeah. Go to the White House and have dinner with the Kennedys, and they're very close friends and all that. His name is John Sherman Cooper, mm-hmm. who was a member of the Warren Commission. I think you could help him and work with him. So he, Wolf says, I started working with John Sherman Cooper. And he says, then, uh, I have to tell you, and, and these are stories you can't make up. He said, Sherman, John Sherman Cooper was a very tall man, and I owned a Saab. But anyway, I drove and he sat in the passenger seat on the way to the Warren Commission hearings. Wow. And I sat in the back row and I watched those. And the first thing I noticed was, wait a minute, there aren't hardly any of the commission members here interviewing the witnesses. It's just staffers. Wow. And see, this is another way that that, uh, J. Edgar Hoover could control what was going on. Yeah. So he said, you know, that that's what I did. And I was amazed. And Senator Cooper then was so incensed with all of that. He wrote a letter at one point, a resignation letter. He didn't. He decided not to send it. But he was so upset because at times, for instance, when Lee Harvey Oswald's brother was testifying, they didn't even tell him that that was going to happen. So he missed the interview. This is Hoover at work. Wow. He and LBJ, in my opinion. Wow. But he said on the way back one day from the. Uh, hearings. Uh, there's a number of things I need to tell you that that uh, that Mr. Uh, Senator Cooper told me, and I'm just going to tell you a few of them. Mm-hmm. 
The commission members already know, know about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, mm-hmm. but they don't want to touch it. Yeah. It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Chief Justice Earl Warren keep pushing the Oswald alone conclusions. Our new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, now wants to cover up everything that happened and move on. The commission members want to bury the truth under a pile of stones, and Earl Warren is acting like a third world dictator. And then one that really chilled me when I heard him say it. Uh, The inability to gather all the evidence that's there in certain areas, as well as a number of suspicious circumstances deduced uh, deduced Morris from the record, has made me preclude the conclusive, conclusive determination that Oswald and Oswald alone, without knowledge, encouragement, or assistance of any person, planned and perpetuated the assassination. So in his mind, he thought that it, there there was so much more to this uh, than this Oswald alone uh, theory. Yeah. So I I, I was going to quit then, and I and I just thought to myself, you can't do that. Uh, I had always found uh, evidence, uh, in, you know, that was really uh, important in all the books I wrote from oral histories. Mm-hmm. Those and the ones that I found at the National Archives. I don't speculate, and you don't either, Ralph. You want primary sources. Absolutely. You want, you want to find out exactly what happened. And if you can interview these people, it's great. Or at least in the oral histories, they kind of come alive. Yeah. So I decided to look into uh, Senator Cooper's oral history. And some of that information that I just talked about was in there. Mm-hmm. But I struck gold when I went to Senator Russell's. Uh, that was at the University of Kentucky for Cooper. Mm-hmm. I struck gold when I went to the oral history for Senator Russell uh, at the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. I found this document, September 18th, 1964. Now think about that date. That's six days, six days before the Warren Commission report uh, is released. Senator Russell forced a final executive session of the Warren Commission, which means all the members. Mm -hmm. His main agenda was to present his prepared dissent and to refuse to sign the commission report unless that dissent was included. After presenting his concern, Russell was joined in the dissent by Senator John Sherman Cooper and, to a lesser extent, Representative Boggs. In an oral history conducted late in his life, Senator Cooper recalled that Russell's well-seasoned opinions had great influence on Russell's own conclusions. Like Russell, Cooper was impressed by the strong and compelling testimony of Governor Connolly and thus was willing to follow Russell's lead in rejecting the single bullet theory and the Oswald alone mm. conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cooper was uh, struck by Russell's emphatic refusal to sign a statement that categorically denied that one bullet had struck both Kennedy and, and Connolly, and it was Oswald alone yeah. that uh, that was involved. Yeah. So that one really hit me hard. Yeah. And Morris Wolf said, by the way, if you want to know how disgusted Senator Cooper was about the final report, because I'm telling you right now, and I'm going to show even further how, how Hoover uh, de- destroyed documents, uh, how they tricked the uh, commission members into believing that that uh, meeting was uh, audio recorded. Yeah. Morris Wolf said to me, and I don't want to forget it, he said, and I put the cover of, on the cover of the Fighting for Justice, the Warren Commission here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what you can see is left to right, you can see, I think it's left to right, there's Senator Russell, mm-hmm. there's Senator Jerry Ford, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Warren Johnson, mm-hmm. Alan Dulles. Yep. And you'll notice he's looking at Senator Cooper like he could kill him yeah. because he knows 
that Cooper is trying to upset the Oswald alone situation. But Morris Wolf said, take a look at Cooper. Take a look at his face. And then you can see he's hiding behind Hale Boggs. Yeah. He was so upset with what happened when he found out that dissent wasn't in there. Oh, it wasn't in there. No. It wasn't in there. It was wow. So so here's here's the the even more shocking, disturbing, uh history changing uh information that I found in those oral histories. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the uh September eighteenth meeting, there was a they, they were told it would be recorded. And the dissent document that Cooper and uh, and Boggs and uh, Russell were going to sign, that document would be preserved. Mm-hmm. The first thing that happened after uh, Russell found out the dissent was not in there, he discovered that there was a woman there at the a meeting on September 18th. And they thought and, and they were told she was recording it, uh, what the, the, the minutes in terms of what happened. But he later found out that the. Um, uh, the recording company uh, had sent that woman there to do a deposition days before September 18th, and she never recorded the conversations at all at that September 18th meeting. So that again is this, yeah. you know, this this effort to just cover up anything that is going to cause problems with Oswald alone. Yeah. But the other the other thing they did then, that dissent document, they just destroyed it. Yeah. Like it never existed at all. Wow. And Senator Cooper was so upset about this in terms of what happened uh, that uh, basically on his deathbed, he finally, you know, they had a code of silence that Hoover demanded on the Warren Commission members. Mm -hmm. That's why they never spoke up. In fact, Morris Wolfer said to me, uh, Mr. Shaw, I I hope you know that, you know, I'm going to trust you with this. Yeah. Because Senator Cooper never told anybody about it. He never said anything. And I've never said anything for that long. But Senator Cooper, uh, passed the baton then about all of this dissent and everything else that went on and all the corruption to Dorothy Kilgallen, and now I'm passing the baton on to you, and I know you will investigate. And I believe that's what happened here. Think about the fact if there would have been a dissent in the Warren Commission final report. Would have changed everything. Then there would have been these people questioning that verdict, yep. and it would have opened up the door to all sorts of investigations, the CIA, the mafia, the, mm-hmm. the Cubans, uh, you know, LBJ, Hoover, all of that by either the Texas attorney general or Congress. Had it been an honest investigation, an honest investigation would have happened, but they just closed the door on it. And so what they've done is they closed, uh, they got Oswald, they closed him up with Ruby, mm-hmm. uh, Ruby's closed up by, uh, by, um, Bell And now they've got the Warren commission just shutting the door. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I was a I was a freshman in college when I heard that JFK was assassination. I cried like everybody else. But then the Warren Commission report came out and I thought, well, this has all been solved. It was this crazy nut yeah. who killed uh, Oswald. And that's what's been perpetuated for 60 years. Yeah. Because none of this information uh, ever surfaced. Yeah. Uh, I was fortunate to find it. And I hope it makes a difference and makes people stop and think not enough questions were asked. The Warren Report drew rave reviews from the press when it was released on September 28, 1964. Life magazine called the report, quote, the most conscientious documentations of facts ever assembled. The New York Times echoed a similar sentiment, calling it comprehensive and compelling, 
in declaring that it should destroy the basis for conspiracy theories that have grown weed-like in this country. And the Warren Report had a powerful effect on public sentiment. Before the release of the report, a Gallup poll found that only 29% of Americans thought Oswald acted alone, while 52% believed in some kind of conspiracy. A few months after the Warren Report's release, 87% of respondents believed Oswald shot the president. But over the years, and with the publication of dozens of books questioning the official story, public perceptions changed. In 1983, 20 years after the assassination, a poll taken by Newsweek found that 74% of Americans believed that others were involved in the assassination, while only 11% thought Oswald acted alone. More questions need to be asked today because the same sort of you know, actions take place with this government that we have. It doesn't matter what your politics are. Yes. You can't trust any of these people. You've no. got to ask questions and find out what you want to do. I'll tell you what's happening right now, for instance, and then I want to go into Dorothy Kilgallen's death. Yeah, yeah. Here's what's happening. This weekend, there are about four conferences across the country about the JFK assassination. Mm -hmm. There's one in Pittsburgh where they are uh, promoting it as all of the foremost experts about the JFK assassination who are going to deal with all these things having to do with the assassination. Mm -hmm. They, I'm not invited. They don't want me to, to, to be the voice of Dorothy Kilgallen right. because it goes against the Oswald alone theory and all these crazy conspiracy theories yeah. and everything else like that. Yeah. They won't invite anybody who is contrary yeah. to what they're going to talk about because then their theories don't really make any sense. I had a, I've had a uh, strong uh, email um, uh, exchange with Cyril Weck, mm -hmm. uh, the forensic scientist who've, who've uh, endorsed my books and knows all about Dorothy and everything. And he is one of the hosts of this Pittsburgh conference. And finally, some supporters of mine said, Mark, why aren't you going to be there? Mm -hmm. So I, I emailed uh, Cyril Weck and, and we've gone back and forth. And I've said to him, Cyril, you know how important Dorothy Kilgallen's death is. Here's, uh, here's the uh, material, the material that I just read to you. This needs to be part of your conference. Her voice needs to be heard. Yeah. Otherwise, then your your conference isn't legitimate and all of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, there can, can't there be something done about that so that Dorothy is part of the equation because any investigation otherwise is is uh, is bull. Yeah. So he wrote back and said, well, Mark, I, I want you to know, don't take it as a slight. We put the uh, we put the uh, uh, conference together very quickly and we just didn't. This is one that burned me about mm -hmm. a half an hour before I started talking to you. We couldn't go on that tangent involving Dorothy Kilgallen. Wow. And I wrote him back and said, how dare you call her a tangent? She is the thread that weaves everything else together here. Yeah. And for that matter, they killed her yeah. because they want the proof she knew what she was doing. They killed her in 1965. And how did that happen? Yeah. If I may. Yeah. She went to New Orleans. She interviewed... Um, uh, a, a, a man that she said was going to give her new information mm -hmm. uh, about the assassination. Uh, when she went back to New York City, she told her hairdresser, confidant, she told friends, she told colleagues at the Journal American, I am going to crack the JFK assassination case wide open. Mm -hmm. I know who killed the president. I know who 
uh, covered it up and obviously talking about uh, Marcelo and, uh, and Hoover. And she said, yes, I'm going to do it. And the uh, hairdresser said, Dorothy, you, you are getting in great danger. I mean, you've got an enemy in, in, uh, in uh, Hoover and in Marcelo and maybe, maybe the members on the Warren Commission and all that. And she said, well, I don't care. Yeah. And she said, yeah, if the wrong people knew what I know about the assassination, it would cost me my life. Yeah. I'm afraid for my life and my family. I bought a gun. Yeah. To warn her about not writing a tell-all book she was writing for Random House about all this. Mm-hmm. One morning she wakes up and she looks at the cover of the front page of the uh, Warren Com- or the uh, New York Times. <clears throat> and there is her son, a photograph of her son, Carrie, her beloved Carrie, mm-hmm. running across Central Park. Wow. And she know, knew, obviously, that he was being followed. Yeah. And that was a warning to her to stop. Wow. And she, she, they kept telling her, don't, you know, leave it, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Yeah. Her, her family, leave it alone. Her colleagues, leave it alone. But Dorothy Kilgallen could not do that. They put on ex- extra protection uh, for, uh, for Carrie. Yeah. And we should point out that she was the one reporter who was saying, from the beginning that she thought something funny was going on that she didn't believe oswald acted alone and she was also the only reporter who was critical of the warren commission exactly because everybody else they bought it they bought it hook line and sinker yeah yeah they did yeah and so uh you know you have to remember her first column she wrote about the jfk assassination uh the oswald file must not close yeah uh justice is a big rug yeah. When one person fall out, falls out, a lot of others do too. I mean, this had to be. I love that. Quote. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the great quotes because, but you can imagine what J. Edgar Hoover thought of that, yeah. you know. Despite the growing danger looming around her, Dorothy Kilgallen continued to be outspoken. In her column of October 4th, 1964, she wrote, and I quote, from what I have read, I would be inclined to believe that the FBI might be more profitably employed in probing the facts of the case rather than how I got them, which does seem a waste of time to me. At any rate, the whole thing smells a bit fishy. It's a mite too simple that a chap kills the President of the United States, escapes from that bother, kills a policeman, eventually is apprehended in a movie theater, under circumstances that defy every law of police procedure and subsequently is murdered under extraordinary circumstances. The Warren Report made a great effort to note that the FBI and the Secret Service were delinquent in their duty and that the press media, TV, radio, and newspaper also were responsible for the confusion that made Oswald's murder possible. Baloney. Oswald was not killed by a newspaper man. He was killed by a nightclub owner, well known to the police, Jack Ruby. How could the Warren Commission pretend to forget that? So anyway, as as November of uh, '65 uh, comes along, she's ready. She's writing this book for Random House. She shows it to Bennett Cerf, who was the one of the panelists with her at What's My Line. Yep. He looks at it, and she's, he's got part of the manuscript. And then what happens is uh, Dorothy Kilgallen was very lonely. Her husband was a, an alcoholic. She had taken on a young man as, as a lover. Uh, she had trusted him with her JFK assassination evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, he then was compromised 
He had huge gambling debts, and I've been able to prove he was compromised by Hoover mm-hmm. into providing all the information that Dorothy was going to put in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he uh, knew about it all, and he was then compromised enough that they would get rid of the gambling debt if he would set her up for the kill. Yeah, and that's Ron. Ron Pataki. Pataki, yeah. A very curious figure. Oh, yes, a, a, a small-time reporter. Yeah. From, uh, the Midwest. Yeah. A real hunk. Yeah. And 22 years younger than Dorothy. Yeah. But she fell for him and she fell for for trusting him. She told Mark Sinclair, her hairdresser, I can't trust this guy, but I'm doing that. I'm I'm in love with him and all this. So she gave him all information. The night before she died, they met at the uh, one of the hotels near her uh, her her, uh, townhouse. Yeah. Uh, She confronted him with with being the person because she told one of her hairdressers, somebody's leaking my uh, Warren Commission and uh, JFK assassination information to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And obviously that was uh, Pataki. Yeah. That night they're at the uh, hotel bar, um, we believe, and I think uh, people can find out in The Reporter Who Knew Too Much or the other books, including Fighter for Justice, the means by how Pataki orchestrated her death. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to leave that open because this is a true crime murder mystery. Yep. As is JFK's, by the way, and Marilyn Monroe's. You got three of them there. None of them were provided the justice that they should have gotten uh, through a thorough investigation. Yep. So Dorothy Kilgallen is found in her uh, in a bedroom she never slept in, uh, wearing her uh, false eyelashes, her eyepiece, and her hairpiece, uh, eyelashes and hairpiece. She's in clothes that she never wore to bed. There's a book on her lap, upside down. She's already read. Her reading glasses aren't there. The air conditioning is on, even though it's a cold night and all of that. Yeah. Uh, finally, the hairdresser finds her body, uh, yells at uh, her husband, uh, Richard. He's so he's still hung over, so he won't call the police. But before he can do that, the front door opens and in rushes these FBI agents. They go through the entire townhouse, especially to her uh, office on the fifth floor, and they confiscate all of her documents, files, and everything about the JFK assassination and the book manuscript. Yeah. This is why I said before, I cannot say what Ruby told her in that courtroom Yeah. because that was confiscated, and I believe that J. Edgar Hoover either burned them or did something with them. They've never to be in, uh, been seen again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we don't have that record. The only thing we can surmise, and I think it's logical, is that where right after uh, Ruby talked to her, where did she go? She went to New Orleans. So there's no investigation of Dorothy's death whatsoever. Yeah. The uh, ME looks at an empty second all bottle on a night table and believes, oh, yeah, another celebrity who's overdosed on drugs. Right. They send her, they do uh, an autopsy at the medical examiner's office by a junior medical uh, officer. Uh, he decides that uh, a verdict is. Uh, overdosed on barbiturates, circumstances undetermined. They let that out into the media, and that's the front page headline, but they leave out the latter part of it. Kilgallen overdoses on drugs. It's like the one for Marilyn Monroe. So anyway, that's on uh, that's on the front page, and Dorothy's reputation is ruined. Uh, nobody stands up for her. And basically, uh, for the next, uh, what, uh, I wrote the, the reporter who knew much, doing too much in 2017. Until 2017, she almost disappears from the face of the earth. Yeah, yeah. And that's the tragedy. Her her reputation was ruined. 
um, after the first of the year, I'm going to try to get a a new investigation of Dorothy's death Mm -hmm. based especially on the fact of all the material that she knew about, all of the corruption, um, everything else that she knew. Uh, that's new evidence uh, that that shows how much danger she was in yeah. and then show the chronology of how she could have been killed. And the capper there is two things. One is that three years after she died, two toxicologists had kept her bodily fluids. And I was able to find out from the son of one of them that they found three barbiturates in her system, uh, phenobarbital, seconol, and tulanol, lethal barbiturate dose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that was never really exposed, but that, that's exactly what they found. Yeah. So the other thing is that uh, we found a poem that Pataki had written, on, and it was up on his website, and it talks about, it, it talks about a bartender uh, fixing two drinks, and Dorothy's favorite drink was vodka and tonic, and putting some poison in one of them, and don't tell uh, the person which one. Yeah. It's really facts that only the killer could know. Yeah. And I interviewed Pataki several times. He denied he had anything to do with the death, but he he, he con- conflicted his um, what he told me several times. There was one time when I finally said, Ron, you say you're a Christian man. Yeah. The world needs to know what happened to Dorothy Kilgallen. Now tell me the truth. What happened to her? And there was a long pause, and I thought he was going to confess what he had done. Wow. And he finally just hung up the phone on me. Yeah. So we, you know, Ron Pataki died last year before I can try to try to could, could, could get him into prison. Mm-hmm. But that's what happened to Dorothy Kilgallen. And unfortunately, uh, she paid for uh, what she she did with exposing the truth in her columns and everything else that she did. Yeah. Uh, and, and her being a blabbermouth and all of that and, and what she was able to tell tell her uh, closest people and what I found uh, with her life. Yeah. Uh, she was a very courageous uh, reporter, a patriot. And uh, she deserved more justice than she got, that's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And just like in the JFK case, and just like in the Marilyn Monroe case, there was never any real police investigation of any of these murders. No, and you know, Morris Wolf had told me uh, finally uh, at the end of the conversation, well, you want to know how I knew Dorothy Kilgallen? I said, yeah. He said, well, I went to parties at Senator John Sherman Cooper's home at 29th and N Street in Georgetown, (laughs) and I checked that address later. And he said, I sat right next to her at the dinner table. Wow. Wow. And uh, she was a bright light bulb and she was interrogating me while she was eating her Caesar salad. <laughs> she was so interested in the truth and all of that. And that's why Cooper picked her. Yeah. Cooper was a man of the truth. Sure. Dorothy was a woman of the truth. Sure. She was a serious person, even though she was writing a Broadway column. Here she was. She was the only journalist who's talking about really the most important issue of the day. And other people were just buying the Warren report. Also in your book, you bring out the fact that her body, her hairdresser, found the body around 9 o'clock in the morning, and the police really officially didn't show up until 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And yet, when her hairdresser left that morning because he was so upset upon discovering the body, Mm -hmm. what does he see parked across the street? Ah, yes. As a patrol car. You're an observant man, exactly. So, you know, come on. This is not a coincidence, right? And then the agent's getting there before the police gets there and the medical examiner gets there. I mean, it, the stage death scene and all of that, you know, they, you know, again, you can't, you can't, uh, you know, go against the FBI. You can't go against the mafia. Right. They're so smart in terms of covering up things. Yeah. 
But, you know, um, uh, she was a very curious person in, in terms of what happened. And her curiosity is what killed the cat here because she just knew so much uh, more about the assassination yeah. uh, than, than anybody else did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Hoover was smart here. He could not let her yeah. uh, write that tell-all book for Random House because I think he thought, well, I'm going to be indicted for covering up the assassination. Marcelo's going to be indicted for orchestrating it. And, uh, and and that can't happen. That's right. She had such a high public profile at that point in her life that had she written a book, it would have gotten a lot of attention. How many months before she died did Pataki sort of cross her path? As far as we can tell, it was about six months. Okay. Uh, she covered a 20th century Fox, maybe you read this, 20th century Fox um, media tour in England. Mm-hmm for several films that were coming out that year. One was Rex Harrison in uh, whatever that famous film was. Uh, um, anyway, there were three or four famous films, and Ron Pataki was covering it for this Midwestern newspaper. Yeah. And I think in some ways uh, he, he, you know, he was a ladies' man. Yeah. Uh, he saw Dorothy Kilgallen. Here's this famous journalist. Yeah, I'm it on. sounds like a setup to me. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. You're a good observer of human nature. That's for sure. I, I, I thought I was going to nail him. I told the New York police department, I went to the, to New York and met with the police chief Yeah. and he said he would investigate. And so I got all this information to one of his detectives. And I said, I'm telling you what, I almost got him to confess. Yeah. You and a colleague go to Columbus, Ohio, getting him, get him in a room and confront him with all of this, especially that damn poem. And he will confess. Yeah. His behavior is very strange afterwards because, first of all, he denied that they ever had an intimate relationship, mm -hmm. which everybody in New York knew. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was he didn't even go to her funeral. He just sort of skipped town. Absolutely. If you're so close to somebody and you're in love with somebody and they die under tragic circumstances like that, mm -hmm. you know, you don't skip town. No, not at all. One of his relatives told me he admitted he was the last person to see her alive. See, I had all that wow, evidence. And I, wow. I'm going to present that to the DA yeah. and, and, and see whether or not we can try to clear that name of hers or as tainted in so many ways. But I, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, millions of people now watch reruns of What's My Line. Yeah. They, it was one of the great shows. It was. Of all. It was a special show. And on that last night yeah. of her life, she gets two or three occupations yeah uh one of them was uh uh let's see uh the, oh the woman sold dynamite that's right that's right right <laughs> and and all of that and so she went out with a fling because uh, she showed that she was so smart with regard to doing that but um unfortunately she made enemies she yeah. made enemies of hoover and then hoover compromised pataki when you go after big truths like that you put yourself in danger and as you point out like she was aware of that towards the end of her life and she kept going she wasn't going to back down no and she was even warned you know you've got children uh and all this and you should leave this alone and yeah she just said and 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 uh you know uh, she basically said I, I i know i know i need to yeah i can't yeah i can't i've got you know i was trusted with all this information now i've got to let the public know about it right. just think about it. if she had written that book yeah it's as it's a it's as much as a what if situation as the dissent being in the final report of the Warren Commission is. Mm -hmm. What if that book had been published? What if that dissent had been in there? Yeah. That's the one that's amazing to me, the, the dissent, because it would have opened up everything. Right. 
And so uh, there was never any, any look into the CIA, the mafia, or, right. or Hoover, or Johnson, or anybody else. Uh, Morris Wolf said to me, we all knew that he, that he was in danger, the president. Yeah. And uh, we tried to tell him not to go to, to uh, Dallas, not if he's going to, not to uh, do, take the lid off the limousine. Yeah. My brother, Wolf said, had lived in Dallas for 40 years. Mm-hmm. He called me several times and said, don't let the president come to uh, Dallas. He's going to be killed here. Yeah. This week, actually, on my podcast, I don't know if you've listened, but I had two film experts here in Los Angeles who bought a copy of the Zabruder film. They were going to clean it up and expand it so that it was, you know, because of technology today, you can you can blow mm-hmm. it up on, on and digitize oh, it and so on and so forth. And when they're looking at it, they notice there's a big patch on the back of his head. So the Zabruder film was tampered with. And you can see it. I'll, I'll send you a copy very clearly. They didn't want people to believe that he was shot from the front. And it literally blew out the whole back of his skull. They went to huge lengths mm-hmm. to cover up this whole thing, even so far as to tamper with evidence that was that was shown to the public. Well, the powerful, the rich and powerful, powerful men. Dorothy took on powerful men, and, and they won. She did. God bless her, man. What an incredible woman! And I think your book is it's it's wonderful. It's a it's a tribute to her her bravery, mm-hmm. tenacity, and and I mean it's tragic as well. Uh, because they sort of took, as they do with people, their one sort of weakness, which she had a weakness for, you know, handsome young men, mm-hmm. and they exploited that. Absolutely. And that's basically what, what took her down. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God bless her, you know. Yeah. I, I think she's looking down on our interview today, and hopefully she's <laughs> smiling that at least we got some I hope information so. out there that uh, shows what a remarkable woman she was. She was a remarkable woman. And, and like you say, anybody want who wants to see evidence of that, go on YouTube and watch her performances on, on what's my line, because she's just a, you can see just a very bright, inquiring, serious person. She sure is very unique. I'd like to, if I may, uh, I've been so fortunate with all these YouTube views and everything else. And a lot of that in my books, just like what happens to you comes from people who watch, uh, them or a podcast like this or whatever. Uh, people, I, I answer every email mm-hmm. that comes to me. I think we've got about 5,000 of them in the last four or five uh, years, but I answer them all because I never know what's on the other end, just like with Morris Wolf. Yep. My website is markshawbooks.com. Some of this information is up there on the website. I've also got kind of a common sense uh, chart that shows uh, an awful lot of the progression from Dorothy Kilgallen all the way through the JFK assassination. But uh, uh, I'd enjoy hearing from any of your uh, viewers or listeners or whatever, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that the autopsy for Lisa Howard was like the ones for Marilyn, JFK, and Dorothy, because I learned when I was a criminal defense lawyer, if you want to cover up a murder, the first thing you do is fake the autopsy. Wow. Wow. And I actually, uh, he didn't know I was going to be on the program at the time, but Michael Bodden, you know who (laughs) that is, famous forensic scientist, I was on a New York uh, radio program, and he was on there too, and I didn't know. And I said, by the way, before we talk about anything else, you know, your signature is on Dorothy Kilgallen's autopsy. He said, what? I said, yeah, I've got it right in front of me. Here it is. Yeah. And he said, well, I, did, I didn't know that. I said, you know, this verdict with regard to um, overdose of barbitu- barbiturates, circumstances undetermined, uh, 
that didn't seem to make sense. He said, oh, no, no, it it didn't. We we didn't know what happened. Mm. But he signed that damn autopsy, I'll tell you. Wow. Wow. So if you want to if you want to cover up a crime, start with the with the faking of the autopsy, because most people then will stop there. They they, they believe it as that's right. You know, it's gospel. Yeah. And don't go any further. Yeah. Dorothy's autopsy was a mess. They even spelled her name wrong and had or she lived wrong and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But nobody looked. I didn't look. Yeah. Because I never knew anything about it. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Glad I've made a new friend here. Yeah, same here. And for your wonderful, wonderful work, important work. Thank you. And for uh, bringing Dorothy Kilgallen's story to life. It's a very important story. I'm privileged to Purdue University, even though I almost flunked out there, is archiving my body of work. Oh, wow. And uh, so I like to uh, include these kind of things, especially such a, a terrific interview as this one. Incredible as it may seem, Dorothy Kilgallen was the only journalist covering the Kennedy assassination to privately interview Jack Ruby, the killer of Lee Harvey Oswald. She met with Ruby privately soon after his arrest, but never published a word about the meeting or revealed the details of her interview to anyone. Yet she did tell close friends that she had found out that Oswald was not the lone killer and that she was close to discovering the names of the others who were involved. Among the people she told was close friend and hairdresser Mark Sinclair, who claimed she said, quote, if the wrong people knew what I know, it would cost me my life. And she started carrying a handgun. About the book she was planning to write about the Kennedy assassination, she confided to Sinclair, I'm going to bust this case wide open. Yet the files she kept on the JFK assassination, including her notes on the Ruby interview, the results of her trip to Dallas and New Orleans, and drafts of the manuscript were not found in her house when she died and are still missing to this day. Whoever decided to silence Dorothy, Mark Shaw concludes, took that file and burned it. I thank Mark for his critically important book, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, The Mysterious Death of What's My Line TV star and media icon, Dorothy Kilgallen. It's my great honor to name him and another brave and brilliant reporter, Dorothy Kilgallen, as today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer Ralph Fazzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Music provided by Extreme Music. For exclusive content, please join our Patreon group at patreon.com slash heroes behind headlines.